0: I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. And while you're looking for 2 Corinthians 4, I want to read something to you from 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. This uh, is the account of when Solomon, King Solomon, had stood up when the temple was finished and had been completed, the construction was done. And as you read through the chapters leading up to that, you see that, uh, mentioned a couple of times when the work was finished, when the labor was finished, God's big on you and I finishing. It's like we prayed just a moment ago. He is the author and the finisher finisher of our faith. Finishing to him is a big deal. Why? because anybody can start something. Do you hear me? Anybody can start something. Finishing is what impresses God. Staying with it, sticking to it. I can start a marathon. (laughs) Man, I could start one right now as a matter of fact, (laughs) but finishing one is a whole other story. Finishing. And that's why uh, when Paul came to the end of his life, what did he say? I have fought the good fight. In other words, you could say, I I fought and I was good at it. He said, I have finished my race. I have kept my faith. What's big to God is not just starting something, but staying with it. Endurance. Somebody say endurance. endurance. That's big to him. And the Bible says you have need of it. Other translations there in the book of Hebrews chapter chapter 10 say you have need of patience. Others say you have need of endurance. That's what patience is. Faith is believing. Patience is continuing to believe. Anybody can start all excited in faith, but what about tomorrow and the next day and next week and next year and 10 years from now? Huh? What about when God says, I have called you the father of many nations and a year later you still got no kids? And three years later, you still got no kids. And five years and eight years and nine years later, you still got no kids. And the whole time he's calling you father of many nations. Well, you can get excited about that nine years ago, but it's another thing entirely to stay excited, to stay in faith. That's endurance. And when uh, Solomon stood up here in Second Chronicles chapter 7, to pray because the work was done. They had finished their building project, so to speak. You look at it, and it was a 10-plus-year project. And it takes endurance to stick with something that long. But like I said, God's big on people finishing. And you see that here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 says, When Solomon had finished praying fire came down, (laughs) fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Notice this, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Would you say that last line with me? Say it, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, why? Because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, say this with me, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. This prayer and what we just read that came at the end of that prayer was the prayer of dedication. They had finished the work and it was time to dedicate this thing to God and to his glory. And God responded to that prayer in a big way. What happened? Fire came down and consumed that offering. God came in person to pick up his offering that day. Fire came and consumed the offering, but it wasn't just the fire. What else was it? The glory, the glory of the Lord Filled the house of God. Like we've already talked about quite a bit today, we are pressing right now towards dedication weekend and the dedication and the consecration and the separation of Legacy Church. Dedicating it to God, dedicating it to His plan, to His call, and to His purpose, and to His alone. This isn't our place, so to speak. It's His. This is His house. And if there's anybody we want to come to church, it's him. And I believe the Lord gave me something that you and I are supposed to focus on together for the next several weeks leading up to the dedication of this place. Sarah and I took the kids away uh, for a little trip while they were on spring break last week. And as we were driving home, it was quiet, at least in the front seat. And uh, (laughs) I was just praying in the spirit over church this weekend and the coming weeks and just asking the Lord, what direction he wanted to go. And I had some things on my mind and I didn't get it exactly that day, but that was Friday. I believe I went to bed that night and woke up early Saturday morning from a dream. And I never had a dream like this before, but I believe the Lord gave me the title, if you will, of our series over the next several weeks in that dream. I saw myself preaching it to you. I've never experienced that before, but he said, I want you to call it the fire and the glory the fire and the glory. Somebody say it. The fire Fire and the glory. I can't even tell you that I know what all that means, but those are the words that I heard. I do know this, that even though we're reading an Old Testament scripture here, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament still calls our God a consuming fire. The fire and the glory. In second Corinthians chapter four, I want you to read with me in verse seven. It says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, when he said earthen vessel, if you look these words up, he's literally talking about a cheap clay pot, earthen, dirt, clay. And he says, we've got a treasure (laughs) <laughs> in, a, in a cheap clay pot. Let me see the hands of all the earthen vessels in here this morning. That's what you are. That's what you and I are. And if nothing else in the flesh, this body is a cheap clay pot. In other, in other words, there's nothing so special about what's on the outside. But what he said was, we have a treasure in the vessel. Yes. What's precious and what's valuable is not the vessel itself, it's what's in it. We have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side. I think, um, is it the King James Bible that says we are pressed? Other translations say we are pressured, I think. And that's what it's talking about. Being hard pressed on every side. It's just talking about pressure. Anybody in here know a thing or two about pressure? Ever been under any pressure in your life? Ever experienced any pressure? Any any relational pressure? Any financial pressure? Any physical pressure from pain or sickness in the body? Any pressure at work? Anybody ever had any pressure at work? Pressure at home? Pressure at school? Pressure in the ministry? Yeah, we, we know a thing or two, don't we? We earthen vessels know a thing or two about being pressed. But what did he say? On every side. What is that? That is equal and increasing and intensifying pressure coming at you from every side. Now, we've all experienced pressure from one place or in one one thing or another, but we probably, I bet if I interviewed some, I could find those who, who know exactly what he's talking about. It just felt like pressure from every side. It felt like pressure at work and pressure at home and pressure in the finances and pressure in the family. It just felt like pressure on every side and it just seemed like there was no escaping it. Now, let me ask you what happens if you take a cheap clay pot and you start pressing that thing on every side? And you just keep pressing and you keep pressing and you keep pressing. Eventually, what will happen? It'll break. But Paul wrote and said by the spirit of God, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Now, how do you explain that? If all we are is cheap clay pots, you press this, this, this clay pot on every side and you just keep pressing and pressing and pressing. That thing is eventually going to be crushed. But Paul said, even though we are earthen vessels, we're not crushed. We're pressed, but we're not crushed. Here, you're finding one of the things that is supposed to define us as believers. Everybody in this world goes through the pressure, but when the rest of this world is crushed, you're not. So, we got to find out what is it that's going to keep this cheap clay pot from being crushed? Hold your place here in 2 Corinthians because we're going to come back to it, but go back to the book of Exodus with me. The Lord's allowed me to preach on these things a few times and I love it. I love it. I love it. Some people do drugs. I preach this message. (laughs) Go back to Exodus 33. You may be familiar with what's happening in these verses but we're going to talk about a man named Moses. Now help me out. Those of you who are steeped in Bible knowledge is Exodus in the Old Testament or new? Is Moses an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Oh, we're reading in the Old Testament. And um, here in chapter 33, it's kind of funny, honestly, looking back at it in the beginning, I'll paraphrase God told Moses, he said, look, you go. You take these people who, he's even said it like this, who you brought out. (laughs) These people who you brought out of Egypt, you go to the land I told you you could have, but then he said, I'm not going with you because these people are a stiff-necked people. We might use the word hard-headed. And some people just think of that as part of their personality. But if it is part of your personality, get rid of it. (laughs) God was not okay with a bunch of hard headed, hard hearted, stiff necked people who would not just do what he said to do. And because they were so stubborn, he said, I'm not going with you. You can go, that's fine, but I am not going with you. And he said, if I go with you, I might just end up consuming you. Remember that consuming fire we were talking about just a minute ago? He literally said it. If I go, I'm probably just going to just wipe you all out. He got so frustrated with these people. But in uh, verse 12, well, if you were to back up, you would see in verse 11 that, or in, in the verses before, Moses had set up a tent and he called it the tent of meeting where God would come in the cloud and he would speak to Moses. And it's interesting, the Bible uses... Uh, uh, an interesting phrase here in verse 11 of Exodus 33: The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, you need to make note of that because I think those words alone kind of paint a picture that you're going to see here in a moment, aren't maybe what you think of it as. But suffice it to say, God would come in the cloud. You remember that cloud that He'd lead the people with? Well, He'd come in that same cloud and He would come to that tent of meeting. And he and Moses would stand there and talk. And it was at that tent and from that cloud, from within that cloud that God said, I ain't going with you. You go, fine, but I ain't going with you. And you can see here that Moses really did talk to God like a man talks to his friend. Because he said to him in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, or you could say, now look. Isn't that what see means? Look, look, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name and you have found grace in my sight. Moses is a bold dude and he's about to have a moment. Moses is having a moment with God and what he's doing is he has taken God's own words and shoving them back in God's face. And he said, look, you tell me to take these people, but you you haven't told me who you're going to send with me. And yet you tell me, you know me by name. And notice these words. You said, I have found grace in your sight. Now help me out again. Are we in the Old Testament or new? Is Moses an Old Testament dude or new? He's old. Now listen to this though. God has spoken to him already and said to him, I know you by your name and you have found grace. Somebody say grace Grace. in my sight. Now you and I live over here on this side, right? We live over here on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you and I live in what the Bible refers to as the day and the age of grace. It's a new dispensation if you will, there are new rules. (laughs) Everything changed. So when I look at this Old Testament account and listen to this Old Testament guy, it makes me wonder, what are you doing with my grace? What's this guy doing with my grace? I'm the one who gets the grace, right? because I'm the believer in Jesus. I'm the believer in the finished work. I'm the one who's repented and received forgiveness. I'm the one who's been washed in the blood. I'm the one who gets the grace. What are you doing with my grace? See, Moses found something. He found that grace is found in one place. God said, you found it in my sight. Or in other words, in knowing how he sees you, he found the grace. He said, you haven't told me who you're going to send. And yet you, it's like Moses said, you talk all this talk about me finding grace and now you're telling me you're not going. In verse 14, God said to him, I'll paraphrase, fine. My presence will go with you. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Time out. I thought we were the ones who were never left and never forsaken. And we were the ones who got the presence of God going with us through the Holy Spirit everywhere we went. And yet God speaks to this Old Testament guy and says, not only has he found the grace, but now he's got the ever presence of God going with him. And to make matters worse, he says to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I thought we were the ones. Does this make anybody else a little mad? What's he doing with our grace? What's he doing with the presence of God going with him? What's he doing with the rest that belongs to us who have come to Jesus? Because he said, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What you doing with my rest, Moses? (laughs) Let me tell you what's happening here. This Old Testament dude is flirting with a New Testament God. He's walking a fine line between the old and new and he is coming dangerously close to a new Testament experience. And the truth is, I think he can feel it because he says in verse 15, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't even bother bringing us out of here. Is this how a man talks to his friend? If you ain't going, we ain't going. If you're not going with me, I'm not going at all. Boldness. He said in verse 16, how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. He's saying this is what makes us different from everybody else. If you don't go, we're just like everybody else. If we don't have your grace, we are just like everybody else. If we don't have your presence, we are just like everybody else. No difference between us and them. If we don't have your rest, we are just like everybody else in this world. And the Lord said to him in verse 17, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses is having a moment. And I think he can sense it because this conversation, conversation started off a few minutes ago with God going, y'all go, but I ain't going. I will flat burn these people to a crisp. I'm not going. And in just a short conversation, Moses has said, if you're not going, we're not going. What about the grace? And God says, okay, fine. You found grace. And he says, well, if you don't bring us up, how will people know we belong to you? And God says, fine, I'll go with you. And he says, fine, I'll give you rest from your labor. And I think, I think Moses can sense the momentum that's decidedly in his favor. He's getting everything he's asking for, isn't he? I mean, can we agree on that? He has just changed the mind of God. And he's getting it all. And Moses, I think, is standing there going, okay, okay, okay. I got the grace. I got his presence. I've got his rest. He's going with me. And I think he says to himself, I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm going all in. And you know what he shouted out in verse 18? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now the Bible doesn't record awkward silences. (laughs) But I think if it did, there'd be one right there. Because God looked back at him and essentially said, no. What did he say to him? He said to him in verse 20, you cannot see my face. So evidently that's where the glory is, is in his face. He said, you can't see my face for no man shall see me and live. Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I could show you, but then I'd have to kill you. (laughs) Because no man can see me. You can't see my face and live. Show me your glory. I got his grace. I got his presence. I've got his rest. I want the glory. Show me your glory. I think what Moses was saying to him was, I'm done talking to you with this cloud between us. I'm done with there being something hiding you from me. I know you're in there. It's bright, but it's concealed. And that's what clouds do. On a cloudy day here, the sun might be in the sky and there's light in the environment, but you can't actually see the sun. Why? Because those clouds act like a veil and that sun hides behind it. I mean, how many times do you get up? We've got this big, beautiful mountain out there in front of us. And there are days when you can see it, and there are days when you can't. Now, if you've never seen it before and you show up on a cloudy day, you might have no idea that there is a 14,000-foot mountain behind those clouds. But there is. I said there is. And when the clouds clear, it's a whole new view. It's unveiled. You can see clearly, right? And I think that's what Moses was saying to God. I'm done with this stuff between us. I'm done talking to you through this cloud. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. And God said, no, I can let you have a taste of the grace. I'll go with you into the promised land. I'll even give you rest. But no man can see my face and live. I believe there are a couple of different things that probably would have served to kill Moses on the spot had God come out from behind that cloud and lifted that veil. When you study the word glory itself, it literally means heavy. It means weighty. It also means brightness and splendor. Both in the Old Testament and New, it means the exact same thing. The brightness of his glory. Glory. I believe that if Moses had even for a second seen actually face-to-face and not, not with a veil between them, it would have been too bright. It would have been so bright that he just would have been burnt right there on the spot. But not only would it have been so bright that he couldn't stand it, it would have been so weighty, so heavy. And this is one aspect of the glory of God I'm not sure we're familiar enough with. The weightiness of it, the heaviness of his presence, weighty. I think it would have been crushing Mm -hmm. the glory and the fire, the fire and the glory. I think one thing we may see through this study is that the glory of God is the actual atmosphere of heaven. We breathe in the atmosphere here on earth and heaven has its own atmosphere. But if you've ever studied any of these things, you know, even traveling from planet to planet within our own solar system, the atmospheres are different. And you may weigh one thing on earth, but you weigh something else somewhere else. How could that be? Well, the atmosphere is different. The air is heavier. The glory is heavy. The glory is weighty. But what God did say to him after you said, show me your glory, God said to him, here's what I'll do. I'll make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but... He said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you will stand on the rock. So it will be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you will see my back. But my face, let me say my face, my face, what did he say? My face shall not be seen. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Moses. There is no mistake in this. He had a moment with God that day. And he got to see the goodness of God. And this experience he had with God where God put him in the cleft of this rock. And as the glory passed by, he hit him with his hand and then he removed it. And he got to see the back of God. But we have to admit, he didn't get to see everything, did he? You have to admit that. God said, you cannot see my face. In other words, you can't see everything. There is some that I can show you, but there, there is some that has to remain veiled, that has to stay hidden. If you still have your place there in second Corinthians, go back with me. We were in second Corinthians four, but back up just one chapter to second Corinthians three. Second Corinthians three is the new Testament perspective of the old Testament story we just read. And in verse seven, you pick up on that when he says, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, what's he talking about? The 10 commandments. Is that not what was written and engraved on stones? As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened right after Moses saw what he saw. God told him, get tablets and I'll write on them. So you see, this is the account that he's talking about. He said, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which was passing away. I want you to note in these next several verses how many times the word glory or glorious comes up over and over and over. But I want you to notice here, he's comparing two glories. Moses said, show me your glory. I'm done talking to you from behind that cloud. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. And God said, no man can see my face and live. But what the scripture is telling us here is that that ministry, written and engraved on stones, it had a measure or a degree of glory. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. What's he talking about? Whatever Moses saw that day so saturated him. It saturated his clothes. It saturated his skin, his being. He didn't even see everything again, I'm not taking something from him because he had a moment. He saw something and it so got on him that it saturated him and he put a veil over his face. And he said, if that was glorious, verse eight, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? So you can see here we're comparing two different glories. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in, say it with me, glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory, (laughs) I mean it's over and over, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel, thank you, Lord. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Why? Because the veil is taken away in Christ. Whatever's blocking the face is taken away in Jesus. Hallelujah. There's even a vestige of this left in our culture today when a man and a woman stand at at an altar of marriage. The bride comes walking down the aisle. But in many cases, we've seen it over and over. What does she have over her face? A veil. Now these things are more than just tradition. They represent something. And it's not until that covenant is made and they've entered into that covenant that he's allowed to lift that veil. Now he knows there's a face behind there. (laughs) At least there better be. He knows that there's something, there's someone behind there, but that veil represents the fact that you don't get access to all this. (laughs) Until there's a covenant. Unless and until we enter into this thing and the two become one, there will be something between us. She's there, but there's something blocking the view. This veil thing is a serious thing. I laugh about this sometimes. You look back at the Old Testament, you remember Jacob? How he fell in love with Laban's daughter? Who did he fall in love with? Rachel. And he said to Laban, I love Rachel, I want to marry Rachel. And he said, okay, you work for seven years and you can marry Rachel. He works for seven years and the Bible says to him it seemed like no time at all. It's romantic, right? And then comes the wedding day. And I don't know, I mean, you know what happened, right? (laughs) Laban tricked Jacob. And the Bible says Rachel had a sister and her name was Leah. And the Bible says about Leah that she had a delicate eye. I think that's the Bible's way of saying that Leah had a nice personality (laughs) because it makes a very clear distinction. Rachel was beautiful. Leah had a delicate eye. (laughs) And I don't know what happened on that wedding day. I don't know if she had on some full body veil or what. When she comes walking down that aisle and Jacob's kind of looking going, is that Leah? Is that Rachel? Who is that? But all we know is that the Bible says they got married. They had this huge party and they drank and they drank and they drank until they were drunk. And it wasn't until the next morning that Jacob comes out and says, wait a second. That's Leah. That's Leah. And I think the moral of this story is clear, young people. If you drink alcohol, you will marry the ugly sister. (laughs) I don't. I can't see any other thing to be drawn from that, other than that revelation right there. But you gotta wonder: How did he even pull that off? How was he able to trick him? I don't know if there was a serious veil involved or what. It was a veil or a trash bag? Or, I have no idea. But whatever it was, kept Jacob from seeing. There's something between them. And the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that that veil is still in place until you turn to Christ. Until you turn to Jesus, there's still something blocking your view. Verse 15, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I like verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, that's the title of this message today with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. Come on, help me out. What are we looking at in the mirror? What are we looking at? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Now listen, from glory to glory. Now, we have used that expression, from glory to glory, to describe different degrees, right? We use it almost in a way of saying things are getting better. Oh, going from glory to glory. And there is an element of truth to that. But go back to what we just read through this entire chapter here in 2 Corinthians 3. What's he doing? He's comparing two glories, You go back to that Old Testament guy who got a taste of what you and I have access to now. He got a taste of the grace. He got a measure of the presence. He got an experience with the rest. But when he said, I want to see the glory, God said, no, not yet. That's for another time. The glory. Now what he saw had a measure of it. There was a taste of it. But you have to acknowledge he did not get to see everything he wanted to see. Now, there's no doubt about it. What he did see, I guarantee you this, marked his life forever, man. He had an experience in the presence of God. He saw the goodness of God. Isn't that what God said? I'll make my goodness pass by. He saw something and it was glorious. But here's the thing. According to these verses, that glory doesn't even begin to compare to this one. And we, with unveiled face, when we turn to Jesus, we go from glory to glory. From that one to this one. Which one? The one where there's nothing between us. The one where we don't have to talk to him through a cloud. The one where there's not a veil over our face or over our heart. We have access to all of him. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. Chapter 4 Verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, you can see he's still talking about this. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is what the gospel is. It's the glory of Christ, listen, who is the image of God, the image of God. What was Moses wanting to see? I'm done looking at a cloud. Let me see the light behind it. I'm done looking at this view. I want to see the source of the brightness. And God said, no, you can't see my face. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? In the book of Hebrews chapter one, it says God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days. So look, he's comparing these two times. You got what he said back then. You got what he's saying right now. He has spoken in these last days to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of of his glory. Who is? Jesus Jesus is the brightness. What did I tell you the glory means? Brightness, splendor. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. When Moses was crying out, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to see what makes you, you. I want to see the part of God that makes him God. God literally had to say to him, not now, not yet. Because that was going to be revealed in Jesus Back to 2 Corinthians 4, he said, We do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts. Are you ready for this? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory. It's the God who caused the light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give it. To give what? To give that thing Moses was crying out for. The same God who said light be and released that creative force. That wasn't sunshine. That was the glory of God. Sunshine didn't show up for another couple of days, but when God said light be, it was his glory the brightness of his glory that shot out of him at 186,000 miles per second and is still creating at that same rate right now. No wonder Moses couldn't look at that. Can you imagine pure light being shot at your face at 186,000 miles a second? There'd be nothing left of you. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. But now we're living not in that measure of glory. This one. This one where now he's given it away. Where the same God who spoke light into the darkness has shown in our hearts to just give it. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Come on, put this on the screen. I want everybody to see this. Where is it? Read that out loud. The knowledge of the glory of God. Where is it? It's in the face. What did God tell Moses? You can't see. You can't see my face. You know what I believe he was saying? You can't see Jesus yet. That's for another people. That's for another time. And the work I'm going to do in them is so marvelous and miraculous They will be able to look directly in the face of the glory. And it won't consume them. It won't kill them. It'll strengthen them. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, that's verse 6. What's verse 7 say? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? Come on, help me out. What treasure? The glory. The glory is the treasure that has been put into the earthen vessel, right? So it's not about this vessel. Dress this thing up, work this thing out, diet it, nip it, tuck it, paint it, whatever you want to do. But the excellence of the power is not in and of this vessel. It's the treasure in it. What happens if you start pressing with intensifying pressure a cheap clay pot from every side and every angle and it's pressure all day in front of you and it's pressure all day from behind. It's pressure all day to your left and to your right. It's pressure from every direction. That cheap clay pot will be crushed unless unless there's something in it that's pushing back. Unless there's something in it that's resisting that pressure. Yeah. Tim, hand me those. I noticed this one time, several times. Sarah and I, when we were traveling and ministering in other churches, we had this routine. We'd, we were flying our own airplane at the time and we would drive out to the airport and we'd get on the airplane. And the pilots would always have a couple of water bottles sitting right there. And I got into this habit where we'd get on the plane there in Texas and I'd open one of the bottles and drink it like in one gulp kind of thing. I don't know why I did that, but it was just this habit I got into. And then this other one would sit closed and full right next to it. Same bottles, had the same wrappers on them, made of the same stuff. But what happens when you fly, you take off And depending on where you're taken off from, you can be as low as sea level. Uh, Where we were in Texas, our elevation was about 750 feet. Where we are here right now is about 7,500 feet. So in Texas, we're much closer to sea level. And the lower you are, the greater the air pressure is around you. At sea level, air is pressing against your body at 14 pounds per square inch Now you don't realize it cause you're used to it, but that's how much pressure is around you on, on the entire surface of your body, 14 pounds of pressure per square inch. But the higher you go, the less the pressure. I said, the higher you go, <laughs> the less the pressure. And like I said, I'd take this, I'd drink this, uh, open this up and drink this. And it was usually, maybe not all in one sitting, but as you take off and you climb out, I'm working on this, this bottle of water. And usually by the time we hit altitude, it's gone. Now, when an airplane pressurizes, they typically pressurize to around 6,000 feet, which is why when you come down out of that pressure and you enter into that lower pressure again, you've noticed your ears try to equalize. It's because the pressure and the air inside your body was the air that was in there when you took off, a greater pressure, right? So when you come back down into it, it's trying to escape out of it. Well, the, these bottles are a good example of that. When I drink this and I'm up at altitude and I finish it and I put the lid back on it. I noticed that every time we'd come back down into that higher pressure without me doing anything, this bottle just sitting right there next to me would start to crumple and crush all on its own. Has anybody ever seen this happen before on an airplane? If you're on an airplane sometime, just do a little experiment. It may not work quite as well if you're coming from this high altitude, but if you're like Florida or Louisiana or Texas and you're down there low, watch as you come back in and without touching that bottle, it begins to collapse all on its own. Why is that? Well, because when we got up there where the pressure was less, there's a less dense pressure on the inside of it. When you come back down where the pressure is more, it's pressing against it. And that's why it's being crushed. But I noticed that that bottle sitting right next to it that was full and stayed full the entire time, Same stuff, made out of the same materials. In other words, nothing special about the bottle. But it was totally sustained and kept its shape the entire time. Why? Because water is heavier than air. I could say it to you like this. Greater is what's in it. Then what's against it? Now, does it make sense to you? What kept this thing from being crushed? It went through the exact same pressure and all the pressure changes that this one went through. What kept it from being crushed? I mean, this thing went through it and you'd never even know. It went through that same pressure. And all those changes, and you'd never know. It kept its shape perfectly. How can you have two of the same earthen vessels go through the same amount of pressure, pressing in on them, and one be crushed, and one be completely kept and sustained? One not crushed. How? Something's got to be inside. Something greater has to be in it. Something greater than what's against it. We have this treasure where it's in the vessel. It's what's been put inside of us. And that's why you could take two people and put them through the same pressure, the same financial pressure, the same marital pressure, huh? the same pressure at work, the same pressure at school, the same pressure in their ministry or whatever it is they do. And one come out crushed and one come out looking like Nothing ever even happened. One come out not even smelling like smoke. How does that happen? Well, greater, or you could say heavier, weightier, is what's in this one than the pressure that was against it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Weightier is the glory that is in you than the pressure that's against you. Is this helping? Thank you, Lord. Right there, where we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what he says, just a few verses. After we're pressed but not crushed. Notice what he says in verse 16. We don't lose heart. Even though the outward man, or you could say the earthen vessel, is perishing, the inward man, what's going on inside the vessel, is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Light. It doesn't weigh anything. It's light Now, these words are relative, aren't they? You can have a light book or a light object, but you could also have a light airplane. Well, what makes that airplane light? It weighs tons and tons and tons. It's light in comparison to a heavy one. And that's what you need to realize and start doing when it comes to the pressure that's on you. It may look and feel heavy, but you got to learn to call it light. He, he says this pressure that we're under is a light affliction, which is but for a moment, and it's working for us a far more exceeding and what? Eternal weight of glory. This pressure, I'm not pretending it doesn't exist. Huh? I'm not saying it's not coming. Hey, you, don't, you know this. The pressure's on. You don't even need me to tell you that, do you? The pressure is on. But what you may not know, but you will today, is that that pressure is light and momentary compared to this exceeding and eternal weight of glory that's on the inside of you. And we do not look at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The fire and the glory. This is what we're going to spend our time talking about over the next several weeks. And we're going to meditate on it and we're going to talk about it. And we are going to prepare for the glory and we are going to expect the glory and we are going to consecrate and dedicate ourselves as we prepare to receive the manifestation of the glory of God. And this moment and the mark on this calendar that you and I are pressing towards right now is not arbitrary. It's not tradition. It's not religion. It's a moment that we are preparing for. And I fully expect to see and experience a greater degree of the glory of God than we ever have before this is the mystery that God willed to make known. What is Christ in you? The hope of glory, the expectation of that glory. Anybody else stirred up about this a little bit?